0: So, we've been in this series, this teaching series called Asking for a Friend. We've done this several summers. We ask again for your input. What would you like to hear? What are those topics, those things from the Bible that maybe you just don't get or understand, or just things about life that you would like to know? What does God say about this? And then let's go to the Bible and see what God says. And this has been a very popular series. I'd love all the input and the feedback that I've received from you and the ideas. So far in this series, this summer, we've talked about does God speak to us through dreams? Does He do that? Do we have guardian angels? How do angels interact with our lives today? And then we, last week we talked about demons and that was a whole thing. If you missed any of these messages, you can go back to the website and catch them. Today is a question that somebody submitted a year or two ago and we finally get to get to it. And that is, is war murder? This is a really relevant topic and it's not just an intellectual thing either. And it's i guess if i were just to expand on the question that is if i am a christian does jesus have an opinion about whether or not i serve in the military is that okay because serving the military obviously may entail taking another human being's life what does god think about that should i not do that let me take it a step further how about people who serve in other positions that may entail lethal force law enforcement pick an alphabet you know cia atf the fbi the dea other governmental agencies, anything that involves this. If you're a Christian, should you do that or not? Let's even go to a more personal level. If you're a Christian, should you carry a lethal weapon? Should you shoot a gun? Conceal carry, open carry, in your car, in your house? Is this something that God would say, I would rather you not do that? And I understand why so many people would want to think about this and talk about this. Some of you serve or have served in the military or in law enforcement, or you do carry a gun. Bob Russell, he's a pastor and an author, he says this, since the threat of bodily harm seems to be escalating in our world, many law-abiding people are arming themselves for the purpose of self-defense. The Bible does warn that wickedness and violence will increase in the last days, but Bob says, I'm amazed at the number of Christian people who are now carrying guns even to church, and I don't want a show of hands, I don't want to know. (laughs) But I feel safe. (laughs) This is not just a theological question, right? Right? This is something that we all interface with. This is something we all have a stake in. If you are a follower of Jesus or not, you probably wanna know about this. We have family members, we have friends who often put themselves in harm's way to protect other people, heaven forbid, but you may find yourself in a situation in your life where you are called upon to make a choice. Is it me, is it my family, or is that person who has evil intentions? And so the question is good. What does God think about this? What does Jesus expect of me if I'm a Jesus follower? And I'm glad you asked because I get to go back and study it out for myself. I already had an opinion. I already formed a thought. I've studied that before, but I always like to go back and look again and see if I missed something. And I want to share in full disclosure, complete transparency, I already had my mind made up before I went into this, I tried to keep an open mind, but I want you to know I don't have the ambivalence about handguns or lethal force that some people do, and I'm not disrespectful of people who do, but my background is I'm very comfortable with firearms, comfortable with armed forces, military, law enforcement, because of my family, for one thing. I just grew up in a home where guns were normal, hunting was normal, serving in the military was one of the proudest things you could do to serve our country. I'll uh, give you an example. My, one of my grandpas my mom's dad served in world war one and if you're doing the math on that you're like brian how old are you are you like the highlander what world war I was 100 years ago so here's the math and how it works my grandpa harry was a lot older than my grandma when they got married and then uh, my mom was their last kid she was their oops baby so my grandpa was pretty old by the time my mom came around but he served in world war I. he was in the cavalry And he just did a great job so i picked up that pride and then my grandpa as he was older he owned a ton of guns and he's a hunter he was a gunsmith so i got that on that side then there's my other grandpa my dad's dad grandpa chester the math works out better here he served in the air force in world war ii in the pacific theater with great distinction and we didn't even know how great the distinction and honor was till he passed away and my grandma had already passed away and we went through his stuff in the closet and we found a box of awards and medals and photographs and places that probably people shouldn't have been but he had to be and we're like wow grandpa just never talked about this stuff but again there was a great sense of pride in having served and defended our country in a great fight and then just of my many friends one of my best all-time best friends served for years with the fbi and he was a member of their SWAT team and served with great distinction and just a great guy And I could just give more and more examples. I'm sure you could do the same thing. And here's the thing. Both of my grandpas, my friend who served in the FBI, strong Christians, devoted to God, influential leaders in their church. And uh, as far as I know, none of them saw any conflict between serving God and serving other people and carrying maybe the potential to exercise lethal force. Does that prove anything? No, I'm just trying to state the case, first of all, and just be open that I do have a bias here. We probably all do. We come to this topic with our own experiences. Yours may be completely opposite of mine, but we all start somewhere with this subject. And so as we think it through, what's important to me, and I think it's important to you because you're here, is that we are humble learners. That no matter what we've grown up with, no matter what's been taught to us, no matter what we assume is normal and right and true, that we always go to the Bible that we always go to the Holy Spirit of God in prayer, that we always go to Jesus and say, here's what I think, but I am open to the idea that I'm wrong. I'm open to the idea that maybe I have thought differently than I should, and I'm open to Jesus changing my mind and changing the direction of my life, changing my heart, changing my attitudes. I think you feel that way too. And as I study things out, there have been things that I've had to change my mind on, just go, you know what, I just don't think I had that right. And I wonder if today that we could all just be humble learners, set aside what we've always thought, and just once again go to the Bible, and just as I've been praying, that we would just all be open. God, what is it you want me to know and do today, and how do you want me to think about this? So we're going to walk through scripture. That's why I want you to have that folder out or that worship sheet, so you can take some notes if you want to. At the end of this, here's what I want you to know. Can we just all agree to be friends after this is over? You make up your mind and that's okay. We can still be part of God's family here together no matter where you land on this issue. So if you're taking notes, though, I wanna go back to the beginning of all the things. Let's just go ahead and see, what does the 10 commandments have to do with this? Because you probably are already wondering that. What about the 10 commandments? Exodus 20, 13, the sixth commandment says, do not murder, thou shalt not kill, maybe is the way you learned it. If you learned it, thou shalt not kill, I'm gonna tell you right now, that's not a very good English translation of what it said in Hebrew. So that's the King James Version from 400 years ago. A better English translation is do not murder. Thou sh- sh- you should not murder. And now, a question that I would have, and maybe you know this, maybe you don't, who were the Ten Commandments originally given to? I think that was right. I'm not sure I heard <laughs> They were given to the people of Israel. Moses went up on top of Mount Sinai. God gave him the Ten Commandments written on stone tablets. The angels instituted this thing, and he brought them to the people of Israel, and he said, this is how you live. It was to individual people. Don't murder. Don't murder. Don't murder. You're going to get so mad, you're going to want to kill your brother or your sister, but don't do it. Don't murder. And then it's also how judges are supposed to rule in court. Do not murder. Now, is there a difference between murder and killing? Let's just go ahead and go a little bit further into Exodus. If you're trying to find it in your Bible, it's easy to find because it's like the second book of your Bible. If you go to Exodus 22, verse 2, there's a little example given more to judges now and how they're to rule in court cases, but it's still applicable here. And it gives a couple of examples. Listen to this or just read it along. If a thief is caught in the act of breaking into a house and is struck and killed in the process, the person who killed the thief, the homeowner, is not guilty of murder But if it happens in daylight, the one who killed the thief is guilty of murder. All right, did you notice two examples here, two different scenarios? First scenario, you're asleep, what time is it? Middle of the night. You have no way of assessing the motivations of that person who's broken into your house. Are they really just going to grab the TV and run? Are they here to hurt my family? You just don't know. And in that scenario, to the judges of Israel... God is telling them, in that situation, if the homeowner kills the person who broke in their house, they did not commit murder. Second scenario, middle of the day, everything else is still the same. If the homeowner kills the thief, he's guilty of murder. And you go, well, why is that? Because in the daylight, you're not foggy with sleep. You can see that person. You can assess their motivations. Is that person just going to grab the TV and run? Or do they really look like they're going to hurt my family? In which case, they're no longer a thief, which is what this is talking about. If a thief breaks, they're a murderer or a rapist breaking your house. It's a whole different story. But the scenario here is better to lose some of your property than to take a human life. So my question for you is, is there a difference between killing and murder according to this? Not according to you, just according to the biblical examples here. There's a difference, right? So, killing is this huge circle. And one part of killing is murder, but not all killing is murder. Murder is what? Deliberately doing something that ends another human being's life. And you thought about it ahead of time. And you don't have a good justification for it. I'm not saying you have to agree with this if you're new to the Bible or if you just don't agree with it. I'm just saying this is the start of the biblical position that there are some times that God maybe prescribes or at least allows taking of a human life. And so, well, we got to go ahead and think about something else. I just want to go ahead and walk you through some biblical examples. What about Nehemiah? you go, I don't even know who he is. Well, let me tell you, this is a, a powerful leader in Israel's history about 500 years before Jesus showed up. And the, the Jewish people living in that area, Judea, Israel, were really in bad shape. The city of Jerusalem didn't have walls. And that's a bad thing. Like We don't have walls around Darden Prairie because we don't need them. Back then, you needed walls around your city because a, a wallless city was like a, a house without a front door. Anyone could walk in at any time, take anything they wanted. So you were very vulnerable to your enemies. It's a matter of national security. It's embarrassing. So Nehemiah is this powerful leader who says, we've got to remedy this. We need to build walls around the city. And he motivates the people, and they're going to do it. And they do actually build the, rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. But the people who were enemies of Judah, of the Jewish people, did not like this because they liked being able to walk in and take whatever they wanted. And they liked the insecurity of the Jewish people and being able to exploit that. So they threatened the people and they were going to attack and we're going to kill you. So Nehemiah gets this brilliant idea. He has all the people who are working around the walls. And the people who lived in Jerusalem did the work themselves. Wherever you live, that's where you built the wall up. And he had them all carry lethal weapons while they built. They literally would work with one hand and hold a sword or a spear in the other hand. I want to read a couple of verses here out of Nehemiah. This is Nehemiah describing what he did. Chapter 4, verse 13. So I, Nehemiah, placed armed guards behind the lowest parts of the wall in the exposed areas. I stationed the people to stand guard by families armed with swords, spears, and bows. Then as I looked over the situation, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and said to them, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord, who's great and glorious, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So you've got Nehemiah saying it is an appropriate response to a threat on your life. To arm yourself and maybe protect yourself. Well, then I want to go ahead and go to Jesus' time. Let's talk about what John the Baptist said, or maybe it's more accurate to say what he didn't say. So John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, he's out preaching and teaching in the desert trying to get people's hearts ready for Jesus. He's saying, repent because the kingdom of heaven is coming and there's a guy coming who's gonna, he's gonna tell you how to get right with God and he's so great, that I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. And so you need to get right and you need to repent and people start coming out and they love John's preaching. Even people who are so far from God were like showing up to hear what he had to say and they're asking him, what do I need to do to get right with God? So tax collectors were asking John, what do I need to do to repent? And he says, well, well, here's what you need to do. Stop cheating people. Only take what you're owed. Don't require, don't take more than you're required to take. And then there's other people coming and say, Well, what do we do? And he says, Well, you need to be generous and share with the people around you who are in need. And then soldiers come to John and said, What do we need to do to get ready for God? Listen to this, verse 14. Soldiers ask him, What do we do? He replied, Don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. There's no fourth, quit the military you know, drop your weapons. Apparently, John doesn't see any conflict between serving the government or serving in the government and serve, serving God and getting right with him. It's not there. He said, don't abuse your authority. Don't take advantage of people. Don't extort money. Don't take bribes. Just, you know, be content with your pay and do what your job is. Just do your job. But then, I guess we're talking with John. We might as well go ahead and talk about Jesus. What would Jesus have to say? He's ultimately the authority that I follow. That if you're a connection Christian that you follow so uh, there's something that Jesus taught that's pretty relevant you might think well this settles it Matthew chapter 5 verse 38 this is in the middle of a big sermon Jesus said you've heard that the law says the punishment must match the injury an eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth somebody injures you in this way you're welcome to injure them back but Jesus says I say do not resist an evil person if someone slaps you on the right cheek offer the other cheek also He goes on to say, verse 43, you've heard the law says, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Here's what I say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. This is where gets gets kind of tricky for me because I'm thinking, well, this seems to contradict everything else. So does Jesus completely change the rules? And now if I'm a Christian, I can't defend myself. I should just become a doormat. Is that what Jesus is saying? So picture the scenario, turn the other cheek. I'm just gonna read it again. Jesus says, don't resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. So just imagine you're, you're so mad at somebody that they're across from me and you punch them. If you punch them, which cheek would you hit? Just do the math. Yeah, right? You would, Unless you do something like this, which is just really weird, you're hitting their left cheek. Or if you're a lefty and you're not exempted, most people being right-handed, Jesus is just going with the majority of people. How do you hit someone on the right cheek? The verse I read paraphrased it really well. If someone slaps you, if you backhand slap insult somebody, that's how you strike them across the right cheek. And what Jesus is saying is somebody insults you, you idiot, go ahead, insult me again. You're willing to receive an injury rather than give one. But in no way is Jesus saying, boy, your life is in danger and just go ahead and stand there and let them kill you. That's not what he's talking about. And then he says, I got a new rule for you. Let's love our enemies. But I have to ask, Ten Commandments, the judgment and exodus that's given to people and it's given to judges and it's ruling in court cases. Is Jesus talking to politicians and military personnel and judges here and lawyers? Is that what he's talking to? He's talking to you and me. In our interpersonal relationships, we turn the other cheek. When it's my brother, my sister, that irritating person that I live next door to, I pray for my enemy, the person that I just can't get on the same page with. Would it be great if all the governments of the world loved each other and there were no more enemies? would love that, but we're talking about us right now. Which leads me to something that another Christian leader would say eventually. This is Paul. If you were to go to the book of Romans in your Bible, this is what Paul would write to Roman Christians. They're in the city of Rome, in the Christian church of Rome. He says to them, let everyone be subject to governing authorities because there's no authority except which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. This is a Christian, this is Paul, Paul who will eventually be executed by the same government that he's telling people to submit to, and he says, if you're doing the right thing, most of the time you have nothing to worry about unless they just start taking out Christians. But if you're going to do something that's wrong, then you better be prepared to pay the consequence because the government will come after you and the government carries the sword. And I love the, or I just, I appreciate the imagery here that you put yourself under the authority of your government by doing the right thing whenever you can as long as it's not in conflict with Jesus. But then your government themselves, whether they recognize it or not, are under God's authority. So that when you obey the government and you follow the rules, you are ultimately showing your obedience and submission to God. And it's an important thing to keep in mind. So if I were just to sum up everything we found so far in our biblical survey, it sounds to me like God recognizes that in a fallen world, there's a need for a government. There's a need for some authority that restrains evil and lawlessness so that people aren't constantly taken advantage of. That he gives the government the authority to even take life. And it's a delegated authority because God gives us life and it's totally within God's right to take our life away. And he's willing to delegate that authority to other people. So here's, here's my take on it just right now. It doesn't seem to me that the Bible condemns the work of soldiers or law enforcement officers when they are acting in a responsible and lawful way under the authority of their superiors in their government, which is under ultimately the authority of God. Jack Cottrell, Bible scholar, Bible professor, he says this, whatever's right for unbelievers to do in government service is right for Christians to do as well. Thus, a Christian can participate in any legitimate function of government, even warfare, if it 's defensive and This is not a violation of christ 's teaching about personal conduct, which then since i 'm already kind of treading into what I think the interpretation of this is again you 're free to disagree with me but let 's go ahead and talk about the military since so many of us have a vested interest in that and uh, so if you're really interested in this, I'm not going to delve deeply into it, but you really want to go check out the writings of Augustine. You've probably heard of him before. He lived about 400 years after Jesus, one of the greatest Christian thinkers ever to walk the planet. There's like Paul and C.S. Lewis and Augustine. He's just, and you can go to the library and get yourself a really good English translation of Augustine, and you'll just be going like, this is great. This is just so good. Uh, a brilliant guy. He is the one who developed an idea that we still use 1,600 years later. The idea of just warfare. That there are certain situations in a fallen world where warfare is actually the appropriate, necessary response. So, if you ever heard the term just war, it came from Augustine. He was looking at 400 years of what the guys ahead of him, the church leaders ahead of him, had said, and he was looking at what Jesus said. And he two ideas. I'm going to use Latin. Trust me, it'll be over quickly. The Band-Aid will come off quickly. He said, there's jus ad bellum, which means the only just reason for war is to defend yourself. If someone else has been an aggressor against you, you can fight back to protect your country and your people and your property, and you can only continue fighting as long as it takes to push back the advance and as long as it takes to make things right again, and then you stop, which is the other side. There's jus ad bellum and jus in bello, which is you only do absolutely what you have to do to win the war and no more. Part of that is, you don't uh, intentionally attack civilians. If the enemy puts civilians between you and them, it's a different story, but you don't just necessarily attack civilians. That's part of his thinking as a Christian leader of in what scenarios would war be justified? And in his thinking, in which a lot of Christians have just said, you know what, that makes sense to me. In a world that has fallen and things are not right and evil people try to do things that hurt other people, somebody has to step up and say No. You're just not going to do this, and somebody has to protect. If you want to write this down, there's really actually four different ways or different postures Christians have taken towards war. That's, I find this interesting. Over on this extreme is the militarism viewpoint, which is any war, any time, you're fighting, I'm there, call me because I want to be part of it. I just have, and this is, I'm talking about Christians. There's just the Christians who say, just yes, if we're fighting, I'm there. You come over here, and then a little bit more conservative than that is selective militarism, which says, if there's a fight, and my country says it is a just fight, there's a legitimate justification, I will trust my country, and I will fight. Then a little more conservative is selective pacifism, which says, my country says there's a fight, and they say it's a just war, but I have to be convinced in my own mind that it is. Because if my country says it's a good fight and I don't agree with it, I'm not going to do it. Now, and then you can probably guess what this last one is. The most conservative position is pacifism. Doesn't matter if it's a just war or not. I, in my own conscience, just do not feel like I can pick up a gun and fight. And, um, you know, Christians generally fall within probably the two middle. I mean, I say that the two extremes. But some Christians just say, I just can't do it. Some Christians probably need to grow up a little bit. Uh, There are some Christians through history. You may have heard of Dwight L. Moody. He was the Billy Graham of the late 1800s. Great guy. I think I've got a picture of him. He is... uh, he was remembered for several things. Moody Bible Institute up in Chicago, trained hundreds and thousands of preachers. Like thousands of people are in heaven because of his preaching and teaching. People loved Dwight L. Moody. Plus he had that awesome beard, right? Seriously nice guy. People loved him and he loved people. And he, his age was such that he was perfect age to fight in the Civil War, but he said he just couldn't do it. He said, there's never been a time in my life when I felt I could take a gun and shoot down a fellow human being. He said, in this respect, I'm a Quaker. We would say pacifist. He didn't have a problem with other people doing it, just as if what God had called him to do in his life, he just said, I can't do it. Another example, more recent example of that, did you see the movie Hacksaw Ridge?, Desmond Doss received the Congressional Medal of Honor from Harry Truman, what he did on the island of Okinawa. They were in this fierce attack up on top of this ridge line, this cliff, and uh, in the middle of the night, his, tr- his battalion was withdrawn, but he said, I can't leave my fellow soldiers out there. So he went out into machine gun fire and bombs and, and uh, mines, and he would drag people out, and he would take them to the edge of the cliff and lower them down 400 feet to the bottom. At the end of that, at the end of the night, the soldiers counted 100 people that he'd saved. He said, I think it was 50, so they split the difference. 75 people that he saved that night. The interesting thing about this, and if you've seen the movie, you know, Desmond Doss would not fight. When World War II came around, he said, I will serve my country however I can, but I cannot pick up a weapon and kill someone. It just goes against my conscience. And he took a lot of heat. He said, I'll be a corpsman, I will do medical stuff, whatever, I just can't shoot. And he took a lot of abuse from his unit and from the people around him until something like this. But the guy followed his conscience, and I respect that. Jack Cottrell says, though pacifism per se is not necessarily a biblical position, the conscience of a pacifist must be respected. I would agree with that. So I, I need to wrap this up. What do we do with this? Um, this is where I shift from just trying to be intellectual. I just want to be a pastor. Uh, a couple of things I would say, and this is, this is so important. Do you pray for peace? Every morning, my wife can attest to this. I pick up my phone to see if we're at war. I just, I just I go, wow, it's, it's some of the things that are going on. But I pray for peace every day. War is one of the most horrible things that people can do to each other. This is never supposed to have been part of the human experience. You should never have to wonder if you're going to have to take someone else's life in your own self-defense. Law enforcement shouldn't have to be a thing. Ambulances, yes, because I'm still going to mountain bike, but you know, you shouldn't have to worry about somebody else trying to take you out. I don't know if you're a Civil War buff, but back in the Civil War, there was a battle that took place outside of Washington, D.C. It became known as the First Battle of Bull Run. People literally left Washington in their carriages with their family and picnic baskets and blankets and opera glasses. Senators, congressmen, they want to go see the battle. The battle didn't go well. Union forces had to retreat in the afternoon. The battle actually went through the crowds of people. People are furiously, madly trying to get their family back to safety, and it was awful. It's not a spectacle. It's not a pageant. It's not a glorious thing. It's not a really cool movie. It is the most horrible thing that humans can do to each other. We should pray for a day when it stops, right? Give me an amen. amen. We should be praying for the day when war stops. And we should pray that we never have to go to war, that somehow our leaders have the wisdom to figure things out so that this is, you know, it's an option, but it's an option we never want to have to go to. You familiar with Savannah Guthrie, Today Show? So she did a feature a couple of years ago with her big brother. He flies in the Air National Guard and she got to fly in the F-16. Lucky. I just so want to ride in one of those. And her brother just retired, so they had him on this week. And yeah, I'm thinking about how great it's going to be when there's going to be a time when we don't talk about fighter jets. I mean, we still have them, but we just call them fast jets or fun jets. They're just really cool jets because we're not trying to kill people with them. And there will come a day when humans will never go to war again, and I'm so looking forward to that. There's an old prophecy in the Old Testament of the Bible. This is Malak, or Micah, and uh, let me find that for us. It still hasn't happened yet, but I think, I think it could be sometime soon. This is down in Micah 4, 3, and 4. It says, The Lord will mediate between peoples and will settle disputes between strong nations far away. They'll hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. Everyone will live in peace and prosperity, enjoying their own grapevines and fig trees, for there will be nothing to fear. The Lord of heaven's armies has made this promise. I'm... I'm pretty optimistic that the American way of life is the best way that's ever (laughs) come across the, well, the second best, because the best way would have been if we just continued to do things God's way. And that day is coming, and we should pray for it, and we should work toward it. And I don't know if you realize this or not, but the power to make that happen is in your hands, because every single person becomes a devoted follower of Jesus is one more person who's letting go of hate, learning to embrace love, learning to embrace a new way. And There's a great verse in Romans 5.1. It says, by faith we've been made acceptable to God And now because of our Lord Jesus Christ, we live at peace with God. And that's the only true source of peace, it's Jesus. And I'll tell you this, if you don't have Jesus, I guarantee you don't have nearly as much peace in your life as you could have. And I'm gonna tell you right now, you don't have to take my word for it, there are hundreds of connection Christians around you who can tell you the same thing. That there's a peace that goes beyond anything you can understand or explain, and it comes from having God in your life. Having Jesus is the most important thing. If that's something like I'm speaking Greek to you, you don't even know what that means to have Jesus the most important thing in your life. Or if you do know what that means and you have been putting that off, today would be a great day. You know what I would love? I would love for you to be able to say, this day in August 2018, I became at peace with God. I went over and I got baptized in the water. I signed my name on the wall along with everybody else, and I'm good.